Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining. I hope you're all enjoying your weekend. It's been a pretty busy week. If you're not familiar, in the previous episode that I did, I talked about this last week. I went over how to research a company. That was the the title of the episode. I outlined different ways that you can do research on companies. One of them was fundamental analysis. One of them was technical analysis. And I said that I believe that technical analysis is mostly nonsense. Now, that phrase that technical analysis is mostly nonsense upset a lot of people. I got a lot of emails. I got a lot of comments of people writing in, articulating their arguments of why I'm wrong and saying that. So I will be addressing that in this video, as well as some news items. We have the question of, If mall shopping is just a thing of the past, if the mall shopping experience is going to eventually completely die out, that is a question that a lot of people have strong opinions on. Some people say, yes, Amazon came in. They made it so convenient, so easy to be able to order online that the malls and the the busyness of it and the traffic and dealing with parking and having to go in and pay more for what you want, that is obliterating all these different malls. They're going to go out of business. I don't want anything to do with them. And that's some people's view on it. Simon Property, which is the biggest mall REIT in the United States, they don't share that vision. They think that there is a strong future for malls. And in fact, they are on the offensive. They bought a company called Taubman. They bought 80% of it, which Taubman is a mall company. They own high quality malls. So this is something where you're, you're seeing some things play out here. I'm going to share my opinion on it. I happen to own Simon Property. So I'll be talking a little bit about why I own that company. We also have a federal judge that blocked the Pentagon's contract, at least held it up for now, with Microsoft. So if you're not familiar with this story, what happened was the Pentagon put up a a bid saying, we have a $10 billion contract where we want companies to bid and, and give us their take of what they're able to do. So Microsoft and Amazon were really the two big players to choose from here. The Pentagon obviously went with Microsoft. And then Amazon is now suing, crying foul play, saying that the reason that the Pentagon chose Microsoft was because of political bias. So I'm going to be talking about this, sharing my thoughts on it. And then we also have more cases of day trading claiming more victims. So I'm going to be looking at that, as well as lots of questions and emails at the end of the show. So we have a lot to get to. Now, before jumping into any of those news items, I want to quickly do a portfolio update. This is my primary portfolio. It's on M1 Finance, which is a a brokerage that's completely free. They offer fractional shares, and I think a pretty unique way in categorizing and organizing portfolios. So there's a link to this in the description of the video. You can check it out if you're interested in seeing all the holdings. But the purpose of this portfolio, like it says, is passive income. If I was to take a step back and even look at the broader purpose of passive income, because it's interesting, you have the the term passive income. People have their thoughts on that. Some people think it's unrealistic. Some people really want to pursue this type of income like I do. But the broader reason, if I was to take a step back and even ask the question, why do you care about passive income? I view that as what real wealth is. A lot of people have different ways of defining what wealth is, but I view wealth as having assets, a portfolio of diversified assets that generate you income, that generate you money while you sleep. That's what I think wealth is, is somebody that has financial freedom. So we have things like the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. 
I really want the first half of that. I want the financial independence. I probably will still choose to work. I think it's important for people to work. It's a fulfilling thing that, you know, most people, even if they're not working their day job, they'd want to do something productive. So I view the financial independence part of that as particularly important. And that's the purpose of this. Without passive income, without having some kind of assets that generate you money as you sleep, you're never going to have financial independence. You're always going to have to rely on your day job. So the whole purpose of this portfolio is to make progress towards that goal of living financially independent. Now, the great thing about dividend investing and the way that I'm pursuing this in particular is I can literally mathematically map out a progress of how much passive income that I'm generating of how close I'm getting to that goal. So if I look right here, I have this Google chart that I plot out how much money I'm earning in monthly income that's completely passive. So money that I'm not clocking in for, I'm not trading my time for it. I'm not renting out my time for this money. Now, as you can see, it has months where it's higher and lower. Different companies pay dividends on different months and that's okay. The general trend is that this is going up and it's going up pretty steadily. As I continue to deposit money into this portfolio, to buy shares of these companies and fractional shares, as I get paid these dividends that end up in my cash balance here and then get reinvested back in this portfolio, it creates a snowball effect. And then on top of the reinvestment, the companies that I own will raise their dividends year after year. So there's multiple factors. There's not just one factor. It's not just me depositing money. It's also the factor of these companies raising the amount of dividends that they pay. And it's the compounding that comes from reinvesting this cash back into the portfolio. All of that is adding up to create a stream of passive income that continues to grow. Now, if I scroll down to this chart, this will show me my average monthly income. These blue bars here are my average monthly income. So you can see my passive monthly income, which are the blue bars, it's going up over time. That's the amount of money that I'm, I'm increasing in, in passive income over time. The reason that that's important is this is like a bar graph of my financial independence increasing over time. The way to look at how financially independent you are is to compare your passive income, the average every single month, compared to your cost of living. If you don't know what your cost of living is, let me just give you a hypothetical. This is a, a scary hypothetical, so it's most likely not going to happen. But let's say that you go into work next week and you lose your job. So you have no income. You have no active income. Now, look at the expenses that you have. Pretty much the things that you are worrying about paying for right now, the things you have to pay for, that is your cost of living. That is how much financial independence you don't have. That's how much you are tied to your active income. So if you look at that, you look at, well, I have my rent, internet, phone bill, groceries, just the basics of your cost of living, the things that you need to be able to survive in today's society. Now, if you compare that to your passive income, that is how financially independent you are. That's how much financial freedom you have. As these numbers continue to go up, you are literally becoming more financially independent. And likewise, as you lower your cost of living by paying off debts, maybe it's student debts, maybe it's auto debt, you're becoming more financially independent. If you're doing both at the same time, where you're increasing passive income while paying down debts, you are lessening the difference and bringing them closer and closer together, becoming more financially independent. So this whole portfolio, the whole goal of it is pretty straightforward. It's to have a ever-growing stream of passive income. The reason that passive income is important is to be able to achieve financial independence. And financial independence is having your base cost of living covered so that you have the ability to have real freedom, to be able to govern your own time, to not have to go to a certain job, meet with certain people, dress a certain way, and have your time dictated by other people. That's what financial independence is. It's the ability to govern your own decisions, your own life, to be able to pursue the things that you really want to pursue. I will say there's some people that say that passive income is 
unattainable, that it's unrealistic, that nobody really does that, and they're just being a realist, right? That's how they'll say it. Pessimists, a lot of times, will disguise their cynical, pessimistic way and saying that they're just being realistic. If there's people like that that are constantly negative, constantly telling you why you can't accomplish certain things, why certain things are unattainable, those are not people that you really want to associate with or listen to their advice. So a lot of times their pessimism is self-fulfilling. They're not going to get you far listening to them. There's people that work well into their 60s and 70s and, and even longer because they didn't do this type of stuff early on in life. If you do this type of stuff early on, it'll heavily determine the type of financial situation you're in later on in life. So it's an important stuff to do early on. Don't worry about people that are negative on it. Okay, let's jump into some news here. I want to talk about malls for a minute. If you had told me this morning that a large re- mall company yeah. would buy another mall company and double down, yeah. I would say that that could be fanciful. And yet I wake up to a deal that I didn't dream of. Well, Jim Cramer there is right. This is news that caught a lot of people off guard, that Simon Property, the biggest mall REIT in the U.S., purchased Taubman, which is a much smaller mall REIT, but they mostly have really high-quality properties. So Taubman is one where they're not low-quality strip malls. These are usually high-quality plazas and city centers, places that are really well-kept. Now, we heard this whole narrative of Amazon coming in with Jeff Bezos, and they're just on this onslaught crushing company after company, mostly retailers, leaving behind a trail of carcasses that are bankrupt retailers that Amazon and Jeff Bezos has put out of business. Now, this has led a lot of people to believe that malls are just a thing of the past. They're eventually going to be a figment of our imagination. They're going to be something where we tell our children and our grandchildren that we used to shop in something called malls, where we would go out into the physical world and we'd look at things in person and be able to fill them with our hands instead of just clicking a button on amazon.com and having something delivered 10 minutes later by a drone. That's the type of future that a lot of people believe will happen. Now, obviously, Simon Property doesn't think that's the case. They say, quote, we believe in our industry. We believe in the business. Chief Executive David Simon said in a call with analysts. Now, it also mentions here that some analysts said that they weren't surprised that Simon is going on the offensive while most pairs are getting defensive. With strong cash flow, robust balance sheet, the Real Estate Investment Trust is a natural acquirer of smaller mall REITs. Their share price were hit hard in recent years amid the uptick of store closures, retail bankruptcies, and the explosion of online shopping. Now, like I said, this comes down to the role that you think that malls will play in the future. So a lot of this comes down to your ideas of what you think malls will be. If you think they're going to be something that's eventually phased out, I would never buy a company like Simon Property. So I'm investing in Simon Property on the premise that malls will continue to play a future in shopping and and the way that we do commerce. So I own Simon Property. It's actually one of my bigger holdings. It's in my real estate pie. I have 15% dedicated to it in this pie. And it's pretty much been in the red ever since I purchased it. It's very rare for companies right now to be in the red. So this is one of them that's always been going down in value and I continue to buy it because I think that the formula, once they transition the malls to the type of shopping experiences that people like with more restaurants and activities and services than the big retailers they used to have in them, I think that the formula works. There's a mall particularly that is exactly like the type that Simon owns in my area and it is jam-packed all the time. Impossible to find parking. There's so many restaurants and people meeting there and shopping there all the time. It's extremely busy. So I know that if the formula works in one place, they should be able to replicate that, make it work in other places. I don't think that malls are completely dead, but I may be wrong. That's why I'm diversified. That's why I have real estate in lots of other businesses and industries, because if I am wrong that malls are completely dead and this goes to zero, it wouldn't really hurt me too bad. 
But if I'm right and Simon's able to turn this around, I think it will have some good value. Okay, the next thing that I have to mention is this whole issue going on right now. A federal judge halts Pentagon cloud contract. So this is the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract, the JEDI contract. This is a contract for the military. The Pentagon put a price tag of $10 billion on it. So that's a lot of money. $10 billion contract might be renewed with whatever company they decide to initially go with. It's a pretty big deal. Now, both Microsoft and Amazon, of course, we have Azure and AWS. They both have infrastructure to be able to accomplish this. Both of them, I believe, are capable of fulfilling this contract. Microsoft is a great business. They have lots of smart people. They would work really well with the Pentagon. And likewise, I think Amazon would be able to do the same. Now, Microsoft was awarded this contract. Amazon did not like this. So Amazon launched a lawsuit contending improper influence from President Trump. If we do some background here and you look at the relationship that President Trump and Jeff Bezos have with each other, I don't think that they're exactly besties with each other. President Trump has been highly critical of some of the things that Amazon does. And beyond that, I think the major thing is, is that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, which is a paper that continually shoots arrows at President Trump, criticizes him, is negative on him. And I get the feeling that he doesn't exactly like the Washington Post. Just some subtle tweets that he says and things that he says give me that that small impression that President Trump doesn't really like the Washington Post. But regardless, Amazon is alleging that President Trump had influence in this, that that's the reason that Microsoft won the contract. Now, this gets even funnier, standing on the side and viewing this all play out. Because of who Amazon has as their spokesperson, we see Jay Carney going on CNBC talking about Amazon and the Jedi contract. Jay, on Jedi, uh, is it really yeah. your calculation that you're going to get to depose the president? That might be because he was the press secretary for President Obama, which was interesting. I did not expect to see him on CNBC talking about the Jedi contract and how he thinks that President Trump had influence in the decision. Now, he's asked here if he thinks that this is going to actually amount to anything, if he's going to be able to depose the president in this. Here's his response. That's for lawyers and courts to decide. Uh, it's very important to us that uh, a legal, full legal review take place to examine what we believe was blatant political interference. And, and that's because on the merits, uh, we believe, and, and uh, the case will contend, that uh, AWS, by virtue of its early start in cloud computing and its, uh, uh, its aggressive innovation over the years, is just uh, you know, a, a superior service uh, right now to, to our competitors. We offer a more comprehensive uh, service uh, of the kind that the Department of Defense was looking for. Now, this argument from Jay, I think, is a really weak one, saying that the only reason that he could see that the Pentagon would choose Microsoft over Amazon is because of political bias and influence by President Trump. I don't really buy that. I think that there's reasons that the Pentagon will be able to point out that are logical reasons of why they chose Microsoft over Amazon. So I don't think that this is going to amount to much. In fact, if you look at market share, Microsoft has been growing in market share substantially compared to AWS. So Microsoft Azure is growing pretty substantially. So there's a reason that other businesses are choosing Microsoft over Amazon, even though Amazon already exists and is the market leader right now. A lot of companies are moving to Microsoft and they're choosing Microsoft over it. So to say that the only reason that the Pentagon would ever do that is because of political bias, you can make that argument, but I don't think it's going to work out. I think the Pentagon will be able to list off a lot of reasons why they chose Microsoft, and they will be able to continue on with the contract. Okay, now moving on, I want to talk about technical analysis a little bit. In the previous episode, you can watch that video sometimes. It's called How I Research Companies. That's what the, that's what the video was, and I showed ways that I research companies, ways that I don't research companies. I say that I don't buy companies using technical analysis because I think that it's mostly nonsense. That was the phrasing that I use, mostly nonsense. Now, 
I want to expound a little bit on this because I had a lot of people write in, a lot of comments and people giving arguments of why they thought that I was wrong. So I'll go ahead and put one on the screen here and read it. This first email says from Anonymous, I think calling technical analysis nonsense when you don't have any background in it is very inappropriate and harsh. You don't have to use it, Joseph. You don't have to like it. And you don't have to look at a chart. That is up to your method. There are a multitude of individual strategies and methodologies that traders and or investors utilize to practice technical analysis as a standalone tool, ignoring everything about a company and its fundamentals. And then there are many other traders slash investors who combine technicals and fundamentals into a sound strategy. To say that this is all nonsense is like wearing blinders. The market is made up of human emotions, fear and greed, price action, self-fulfilling prophecies, areas of support and resistance, patterns that display time after time. The technicians can use an edge when playing probabilities on short-term time frames. Some are extremely successful in doing that, though I believe these are mainly outliers, especially as the time frame gets smaller and smaller. You are a long-term investor. Not everyone is. So you give your view that you use fundamentals only is fine. Just don't insult those that use technicals like it might as well be fairy dust. Okay, so I think that this email gives you an idea of the the general type of messages that I've been receiving over the past week on this subject. So let me go ahead and break down some of this comment here. Uh, First of all, I will say that me saying that I think that technical analysis is nonsense I'm not the only one making this claim. This isn't something that I'm just saying alone. There's a lot of, I think, pretty well-known great investors that in one way or another have said the same thing, right? They might not have used the exact same phrasing saying that it's mostly nonsense, but they say things with the same result. Warren Buffett said that he, quote, realized that technical analysis didn't work when I turned the chart upside down and didn't get any different answers about a company. Peter Lynch was quoted as saying that charts are great at predicting the past. Howard Marks has spoken out against momentum investing, saying that by its very nature, it can't go on forever and people don't know what it ends, defeating the purpose of momentum investing, which is a form of technical analysis. So there's lots of investors that are well-respected, very good at what they do, that have much better credentials than I do, saying in effect the same thing. Now, if I look at this further to address your comment here, let me go ahead and, and ignore appeals to authority because we could all point out somebody great at something that might have said something on a topic right now i can go through and find a lot of great investors most of them are very good investors they're not going to steer you towards technical analysis they're not going to say look at head and shoulders patterns look at resistance and support that's not what great investors are going to steer you at but putting that aside we can go on to different parts now technical analysis we know is a tool that what is it primarily used for what are most people using technical analysis for it's mostly used for day trading. If we look at this, it says right here in Investopedia, the individual traders typically day trade using technical analysis and swing trades, combining with some leverage to generate adequate profits, such as small price movements and high liquidity stocks. That is generally when technical analysis is used. If you go onto YouTube and you search day trading, you'll find different people making lots of money, quote unquote, day trading, selling courses on day trading. And the tool that they will always sell, the thing that you have to learn is technical analysis. That's what they're doing. They'll show their candlestick charts. They'll show the trades that they win, not the ones that they lose. They'll sell people on courses to sign up for that. That is what technical analysis is primarily used for. Now I can go and show different studies about day trading. There's some studies that have looked at this and day trading in different forms, and they found the same conclusion. One of them that says, can you day trade for a living? We show that it is virtually impossible for individuals 
individuals to compete with high-frequency traders and day trade for a living. Contrary to what course providers claim, we observe all individuals who begin to day trade between 2013 and 2015 in the Brazilian equity futures market, a third in terms of volume in the world, and who persisted for at least 300 days, 90% of them lost money. Only 0.4% of them earned more than the bank teller, which was $54 a day, and the top individuals earned only $310 per day with great risk, a standard deviation of $2,560. That's one of them. We have the ASIC, which is the Australian Securities and Investment Commissions. They did this investigation. They say here on the proposed ban on the sale of binary options to retail clients and restrictions on sale of CFDs. Part of this investigation, they looked at what day traders were doing and how many of them made money. It says that 80% of the clients who traded binary options lose money. 72% of the clients who traded CFDs lose money. And 63% of clients who trade CFD over currency pairs lose money. What are the tools that they're using here? What are they making these decisions on these trades? It's technical analysis. That is what day traders are using. Overwhelmingly, that is the tool that is sold. The people that are making money with this are the people selling the courses. The people that are losing money are the people buying the courses and trying to make a living doing day trading using technical analysis. Okay, so Anonymous, you might be saying that this is unfair because I'm grouping together technical analysis with day trading and not every day trader uses technical analysis. So even though we know that that day trading mostly loses money and the way that most people day trade is by using technical analysis, let's put that aside for a minute and look at a study that focuses only on day traders that use only technical analysis. This one was conducted in 2014. It says in the abstract, we find that individual investors who use technical analysis to trade options frequently make poor portfolio decisions, resulting in dramatically lower returns than other investors. Overall, our results indicate that individual investors who report using technical analysis are disproportionately prone to have speculation on short-term stock market developments as their primary investment objective. They hold more concentrated portfolios, which they turn over at a higher rate, are less inclined to bet on reversals, choose risk exposure featuring a higher ratio of non-systemic risk to total risk, engage in more options trading, and earn lower returns. That is their conclusion there. Overall, they're earning lower returns. Okay, so let's go back to this message here. This is something that I want to address, a couple points in it. First of all, the first sentence you said that you think that me calling technical analysis nonsense when I don't have any background in it is very inappropriate and harsh. Very inappropriate and harsh. Let me address this because this is an argument that you see a lot of times where if you don't have personal experience in it, if you don't have a background yourself in it, you can't accurately give input on it, okay? This is not true at all. For instance, I have never in my life purchased a lottery ticket. I've never done so because as a means of personal wealth creation, a lottery is nonsense. It's not going to create personal wealth. I understand that it's a way for people to transition wealth from their pockets into the state or the people running the lottery. That's the whole role of it. So I can accurately, confidently, competently sit on the sidelines, never having a background in the lottery, never participating in it, and I can accurately call it nonsense. In terms of wealth creation, it is nonsense. That's something that you're able to do. So that's the first thing, that you're not limited to giving input on things that you've personally participated in. And to say that I would have to have personal experience in every form of losing money to be able to give input on it would be completely ridiculous. Did I have to get in massive amounts of debt and go bankrupt to be able to say that getting in debt and bankrupt is something counterproductive to creating wealth? Did I have to go and buy a $50,000 truck when I had $2,000 in my bank to understand that that wasn't a financially smart decision? No. 
I understand full well, with full confidence, that that's not a financially smart decision without ever having done it in my entire life. I have no experience with personally destroying my finances because my understanding of finances has allowed me to avoid those very situations. So that's a, a really ridiculous requirement that I would have to personally have a background in the activity to be able to give an accurate view on it. Another thing I'll point out in this, towards the end of your comment here, you, you point out that the market is made up of humans, greed and fear, self-fulfilling prophecies, areas of support and resistant patterns and display of time after time that technicians use as an edge when playing probabilities on a shorter time frame. Some are extremely successful in doing that. So this is the, the part that I want to point out here. Some are extremely successful in doing that. Some are extremely successful. So this is what you hear a lot. Inevitably, if you make an argument that this financial activity will likely not turn out good, you will hear the argument that some are successful doing it, that there are people that make money doing it, that it's possible to make money doing this. Should that really be the question? If it's possible to make money doing this? If you apply that to anything else, it's possible to make money doing almost anything. Pick any activity that exists in the world, and it's possible that you could make money doing it. If I go back to the example of the lottery, which is financially nonsense, I could say it's possible to become unbelievably rich doing this. You could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars buying lottery tickets. And I can cite examples of that. People that have become multimillionaires buying lottery tickets. So does that help at all, saying it's possible? No, the question is, is it probable? Are you likely to make money doing this activity? Overwhelmingly, if you look at an activity and the odds are that you are likely not going to make money doing it, that's probably not a financial activity you should pursue. Technical analysis, especially when combined with short-term day trading, it's most likely that you're going to lose money. You should look at the probable outcome. How likely is it that you're going to make money doing this activity? I can go over to the Wall Street Journal here and cite this study that they go through with dividend investing. From 1958 through 2018, a portfolio with the top 20% of S&P 500 companies ranked by dividend yield and weighted by market capitalization outperformed the overall S&P 500 by 2.13 percentage points annually, according to Chicago-based GreenRock Research. There's tons of research showing that dividend investing performs really well over multiple time periods during all sorts of different environments, during all sorts of different economies, the dividend growth strategy is replete with studies showing that it performs very well. That overall, you are highly likely to make money doing this activity. That all you have to do is stay invested long enough and you're likely going to make money. Overwhelmingly, huge percentage, the odds are in your favor that you're going to make money. Based off all the research, all the data that we have, if you follow this strategy, you have an overwhelming chance of making money doing it. So when I compare the two, this isn't a comparison of short-term or long-term, it's just about making money. I would choose whatever strategy I think has the highest likelihood with the highest amount of confidence to be able to make me money. And the way that I see that with the data and the arguments that presented to me, the different studies and the different research on this, and opinions of people that are very wealthy, that have a history of making money, most of them aim towards the type of investing that I choose to follow. So this isn't a thing between me just having a preference of long-term and not preferring short-term. This is me having a preference of making money. That's generally where my preference stands. So I'm going to continue to do that strategy. And things that I see as money-losing activities, I'll continue to say that they're mostly nonsense. I don't have any problem saying that because I don't think that I'm putting anybody that follows my advice in a bad situation. I think that people choosing between the two, they're more likely to make money doing one than the other by a long shot. So I don't have any qualms about saying that. 
Now, on this note, I like to look at real-life examples. I know that this is anecdotal. This doesn't paint a full picture. But we have here on Wall Street Bets, this is a subreddit that is just a lot of people that do really crazy trading strategies. It's interesting to look at. There's some big winners. There's a lot of losers. That's pretty much the breakdown of gambling, how it usually works. One person here says, I quit my job to trade for a living, ended up losing everything, wasted four years of my life. Goes on to say, I have always worked a low-paid job earning about the equivalent of $25,000 a year. I found out about CFDs four years ago and thought, great, this looks easy. In my first year, I blew an account worth $10,000. Next few years, I lost $25K. I then discovered the Holy Grail, the slow stochastic indicator of the relative vigor index. I used these tools to claw back the money I lost and made $15,000 in profit. I got excited and quit my job. Then I found out that these indicators don't work when the markets are trending or parabolic, so I lost $45,000 in three months. I've maxed out my credit cards. I have a personal loan to pay off and no job. Oh, by the way, I got scammed 10000 by a phony lawyer in 2014. I never went to college. I'm an unskilled worker. I wasted four years of my life. I've never had a girlfriend. I live with my parents and have no car. I'm 26 years old with no friends or social life. My father was poor. His father was poor. I will also be poor. Now, this reminds me of the saying, I think it goes something like, smart people learn from their own mistakes. Wise people learn from the mistakes of others. I think that he's being a little bit dramatic here, saying that he's going to always be poor. But so far, the decisions he's made to spend full time trying to make money quickly through day trading, this is not something that's going to work out well. You can look at a few outliers that they, the gambling paid off for them, that they got rich day trading, doing something extremely high risk. That's how it works. There's some people that make money with the lottery. But whether or not the probabilities are in your favor is something you need to look at. These examples of people that lose a lot of money and time and opportunity cost, trying to make quick profits, there's so many of them. I could keep going on with them, and I think it's interesting to look at. It's just a reminder of the difference between investing and betting. Okay, let's move on to some emails. Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com if you would like to email in your questions. The first one is from Kim. She says, hi, Joseph. I really appreciate your show. It always gives me a good start to the week. Since you're a developer, I wanted to ask for your insight into a developer's career. I'm currently studying computer science in Europe and I'm working part-time as a programmer. From the little I've experienced, it seems that programmers don't stay programmers their whole life and instead take up managerial positions after a couple of years. What's the best way of quickly moving upwards or can you also have a fulfilling career staying a programmer? On a different point, I'm planning on finishing a university at a bachelor's degree and moving to the U.S. Is it worth it to spend the extra time no money since it's free, to pursue a master's degree. In general, I am quite dissatisfied with the university as it is quite theoretical and knowledge cannot be directly applied to the work as a programmer. When programming for an entire day, I can notice that my vision being noticeably worse at a distance for some time after finishing work, I have concerns that this will worsen as time goes on. Do you have anything special that keeps your vision in good shape? Okay, Kim, I think you have three different questions in there, so I'll just go through the first one. Should you quickly try to move upwards to a management position after becoming a programmer? I don't think that that's necessary. I don't think that that should be your goal. Once you start programming, I think your goal should be to develop a a wide and broad range of knowledge and ability to be able to accomplish anything that has to do with creating software, creating tools for the different projects you're working on. So the more different things that you work with, the more tasks you'll be willing to take on the more broad your knowledge will grow. And then naturally you'll be able to have people work underneath you because 
you'll have all this experience with years of doing different things with different projects. And you might hire somebody that only has experience doing one thing with one language, with one project, and they need somebody to ask questions to and help. That's where you naturally move upwards into a programming management position. So it's not so much you want to seek out a management position and try to quickly move up. It's you want to broaden your skill set until you're so knowledgeable on so many different subjects that have to do with software development and the discipline that naturally you're good at answering other people's questions. That makes you a manager. Whether a company recognizes that you're becoming a manager is something entirely different. There's people that are so good at their jobs and they answer so many different questions from different people and they become ownership of different projects naturally that they're in management. Whether a company puts a label on you that you're a manager is kind of irrelevant because if you're in that position and a lot of people are relying on you, you're now in management and typically a company will recognize you or if you go and apply to different roles, you can move to management. What I wouldn't do is give up your specific knowledge and the skill set you have in implementation because that's very valuable as long as you're able to actually go to a company and offer specific solutions like the discipline of knowing different programming languages and implementing different things, you're always going to have work. Try to keep your skill set even if you move into a management position. Now, your next question, you talk about how you're pursuing a bachelor's degree, then you plan on moving to the U.S. Is it worth it spending the extra time to pursue a master's degree? This is a tough one. Anytime you have advanced knowledge and you have more schooling, it's just more credentials. It's always good to have on a resume. That would for sure put you above people of equivalent knowledge that just have a bachelor's. But in terms of the, the opportunity cost, I think getting into the workforce and learning a lot on the job in good companies, especially maybe smaller companies that are startups that allow you to work on a variety of different tasks that can pay you a good salary at the same time, you're going to be paid a lot. So don't worry about not paying for school. You'll be paid a lot on the job to be able to advance your knowledge, to be able to advance your education. If you're educated as a developer, if you're extremely good at what you do, it doesn't matter whether you have the master's degree stamp or the bachelor's degree stamp, companies are going to want you to help them grow. Entrepreneurs are going to want you to help them make millions of dollars, and they'll pay a lot of money for it for people that are really talented developers. So in my mind, there's a trade-off. In some situations, if you're looking to get on the about page of a company where you're the VP and you really want to quickly move to a company that has some kind of position like that, it might be worth it to have the master's. They might value that. But in a lot of environments, a bachelor's is more than enough, especially in technology, when there is a big focus on the skill set, how much you can actually help them, how resourceful you are, that is a huge focus of it. So I will say that in terms of just knowledge of what you're actually going to gain, I think you'd gain far more on the job. So if I looked at my overall knowledge of, of development and the things that I use on a daily basis, I would say about 97% plus of it has been learned on the job. The, the knowledge that I use every day, probably over 97%. So you do learn theoretical stuff. You get a good background. School can help with networking and different opportunities. It gives you some legitimacy, shows that you're very committed to it, things that employers look for. But in terms of practical sense of going in and learning things that you're going to use on a daily basis to help a company, most of the practical knowledge that you're going to use is going to be in the workforce. So just keep that in mind. Now, your last question about eyesight, if you look at a computer screen for eight hours and then you get up and you look at something past 10 or 20 feet away, you'll probably notice that it's a bit blurry. That's uh, my myopic, that's myopia right there. And that's very common. That's something I experienced. I've talked to my brother about it before. I'm no 
I'm no expert on eyes. My brother is an expert on eyes. He's an eye surgeon and does surgeries on people's eyes all the time. So I brought this up in conversation and asked him if there's anything I can do to prevent this from happening. He says that it's simple eye strain, that it's not a, a big deal. It's something that's very common. It doesn't have anything to do with the computer screen. So people think it's like the blue lights and the computer screen in particular. And if they do something over the computer screen, it will help with it. It doesn't matter if you're reading a book, you're looking at a phone, you're looking at a computer screen. The fact that you're looking at something so close puts your eyes in a very uh, flexed position. So the little ciliary body or whatever it is contracts into a flexed position and you keep it that way for eight hours, it becomes difficult for it to relax when you decide to look at something further away. So when you look at something really far away, your eyes should be in a relaxed state. That's a, a normal relaxed state. But what we do as developers looking at computers all day or any job that you're on a computer all day, is you're flexing your eye muscle the entire day, and then you're saying, hey, relax right now when I'm looking at something further away, and it's difficult to do that. So the general advice is to every hour or any time increment that really works with you, the more frequent, the better, obvious, but every hour, spend five or 10 minutes walking around, looking at things that are further away. Let your eyes get in the habit of being able to to flex in that posture and then relax when you're looking at something further away, that's the advice that I've been given. The more frequent you can do that, the less eye strain you're going to have. But generally speaking, he doesn't think that a little myopia when you're growing up and getting into your 20s and 30s is a really big thing to be concerned about. Okay, well, I have a lot more questions to get to, but I'm going to have to save them for the next episode. I should be coming out with one maybe mid next week. So if you like the content, be sure that you're subscribed to the channel and I will be talking to you guys next time.